Our scripture reading today comes from 1 Peter 5, 5b through 11. That's 1 Peter 5, chapter 5, 5b through 11. Please follow along with me as I read. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we come to you and indeed be still our soul. <laughs> because, Lord, we stand the one who is the Almighty, the one who has orchestrated all events and kings, princesses, governments, regimes, ideologies such as Marxism. <laughs> In your very breath, you can eradicate. We've seen your hand in history. We know the end because we read of it in the book of Revelation. And so, Father, we thank you. In the midst of it, we're called to stand firm. Thank you for Adonis and Ramonda for all that they've encountered and yet stand today to say, yes, we can exalt the Lord. Why? Because you have once again proven yourself to be faithful. We pray for the missionaries that uh, were serving in Haiti that have been kidnapped. We pray for the church at large, countries that are closed, countries where to meet in a morning like this would mean arrest. For pastors who are being incarcerated even in North America this very morning because they've stood. We pray for the church. May we not be silent. May we stand in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would, turn to 1 Peter. If you are just joining us, you're going, wait a minute, I heard you were in Luke. We are. <laughs> but we've taken a little break to focus on the theme of prepare to stand. And Pastor Michael said, we're going to do 1 Peter a couple sections. And I said, great idea. And so I'm so thankful for his sermon last week. First Peter has been called the jewel of the New Testament. This little book that's nestled in the new latter part of the New Testament, the Apostle Peter is writing to a group of believers who are suffering for their faith. They're amidst a persecution. Some have undoubtedly lost their jobs. Others are being in prison. And some, it would appear, will be executed. And he says, stand firm in the grace of God. It's the theme of this book, and as we wish we had more time to develop it, 
Perhaps in the future we will, but that's the theme. And so this undertow of persecution is, is the backdrop of the letter that Paul is writing, or Peter, excuse me. <laughs> and on one level, scholars will say, well, it's just a low-level persecution. There's, you know, one scholar writes, the official accusations could be brought by the local populace with the result that sanctions were meted out by the authorities against those who profess Christ. I'd argue it's, it's far more intense than that because 1 Peter 4, 16 seems to indicate you're dealing with also execution, capital punishment. After all, the emperor Nero is sitting on the throne. And this is in the 60s, and we know great persecution. But even on one level, there's the loss of jobs, that being you couldn't belong to the guilds if you embrace Christ, thus you have economic oppression. There are no social benefits because you've been ostracized. And as we would argue, there's legal ramifications, even possible capital punishment. In, when we study the letters of the New Testament, often focus is given to the thanksgiving. That is the intro to the letter. There is a structure, isn't there? Just as there is today. When Johnny writes to mommy and daddy from camp, he says, hi, mom and dad. I got stung by a bee. Send more money for the snack shop. L love, Johnny, right? There's this structure. And that's true with the letters in the New Testament. And many would say, well, you look at the beginning and that tells you where you're going. And sometimes we neglect the conclusion, the latter part of the letter. And that's what we're going to do this morning. And it shouldn't surprise you, if, in fact, if you have time, do this this week. Study the beginning and the end of the letters. You'll find that the themes percolate again, rehearsing what you've just studied. And Peter is going to highlight three imperatives in this section. To stand, to resist, and to hope. Stand, resist, and hope. So let's look at this, this latter part of the letter as he's wrapping this up. Peter writes and he says here in the latter part of five, quoting from Proverbs, he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. As he lays out this call to stand well in the midst of adversity, he says the first thing is humility. <laughs> what an interesting thought. Right? Of all the things to talk about, he starts with humility, the first exhortation in this letter. But you think about it, in light of suffering and persecution, a believer needs to recognize and accept God's ordained will. Love the testimony, Aranas and Ramonda, saying this is God's will. And, uh, you know, we, we trust Him, we look to Him. One uh, Marshall Howard Marshall wrote in his commentary on 1 Peter, to submit to God means basically that we are conscious of our humble status as his creatures. We are prepared to do his will, whatever that may be, at the cost of curbing our own sinful and selfish desires. I mean, think about it. If it, it's truly all about Christ, then suffering for him should be a great honor, Right? This is what he's called you to do. This is exciting. It reminds me of the, the line, you know, when the bases are loaded and they say, now, if, if the ball even gets close to you, let it hit you because you're taking one for the team, <laughs> right? You're taking one for the team, uh, like that bee that leaves the, the hive and is willing to die by stinging the adversary. They're taking it for the team. 
We're, we're taking it for Christ. We're, we're delighting in his sufferings. First Peter 4, the text we've seen, the joy for a believer is to share in Christ's suffering. And so in the midst of this, he says, you need to acquiesce to God. And, and that means putting yourself second to the things of the Lord. Interesting. Notice what he says about this humility. And God will exalt you in his time if you humble yourself by casting all your cares on him. Notice several things he says about humility. And if you're following along in your notes, it's there for you with the bullet points. But number one is humility recognizes the sovereignty of God. He says it, doesn't he? He says, if you humble yourselves under what? His mighty hand. That phrase we've already seen. It was used in the book of Exodus on God's mighty hand and how he delivered the Israelites. Or it's used when Christ heals the blind man. His mighty hand is that which cares, that which provides, that's what leads. He says, humble yourself under that. This is the one who's taking care of you. All the twists and turns, the questions that go unanswered, just lean on him. He's in charge. He goes before. No wonder Augustine, early church father, says, if you ask me what is the first precept of the Christian religion, I will answer first, second, and third, humility. <laughs> and, and notice, Peter says here, if you humble yourselves, and he talks about clothing. In fact, early part of five, he says, be subject to the elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility. It's to fasten on a garment, to put it on. The action doesn't just happen, does it? <laughs> it's, you, you need to be intentional about humility. The same concept is seen in Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And in clothing, again, go back to the text. Don't miss this. He says, because God, again quoting from Proverbs, opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you want grace in this life, grace in the midst of suffering, then you need to bend your knees to God Almighty. If you want to take on God and oppose Him, then you're walking in arrogance, and Hebrews 10 is clear. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There are no middle grounds. If, and, and Peter saying, if you want to follow Christ, and, and Peter should know, <laughs> he messed up. Shall we not forget? He denied the Savior. No wonder First Peter is called the epistle of grace. It oozes on the topic of grace. Why? Because Peter understands. But in the process, he says, if you want to follow this one called Jesus, you got to humble yourself. I mean, the act of humility is where salvation begins. Salvation entails a recognition of our limitations, the inability to secure the peace and happiness the hopelessness, recognizing the hopelessness found in any and all that this world can offer and bending our knee when we come to Jesus, the one who is ready to extend grace. Arrogance doesn't need a savior, but seeks to self-gratify and self-aggrandize. It's arrogance which hinders repentance 
and I would argue forfeits eternity. Humility, on the other hand, recognizes that, that we're a sinner. <laughs> There's not much I can bring. There's nothing ultimately I can bring to a sovereign and almighty God who's holy and just. And it calls upon Jesus, the one who paid the price for our sin by dying on a cross, turning to him as Lord and confessing my sin. It is this humility, ironically, that finds what this world longs for, grace, peace, and hope even in the life's most difficult situations. And so, Peter says in this final words to the believers who are suffering is walk in humility. Be very careful. And notice this humility begins in recognizing the sovereignty of God. This humility leads to exaltation because he says, and God will exalt you, verse 6, in due time. This idea of being exalted in the end, Luke 14 says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's due time. It's certain. It's going to come. It, it's time sensitive and there is an end goal. But in the midst of suffering, you do ask the question, don't you? At least I find myself, well, how can I be sure, God, when the minutes turn to hours and the days turn to years, really? And the answer is yes. Why? What did the text tell you? If you humble yourselves, you're under his mighty hand because God is sovereign. He's the almighty. This is how he can sustain and this is how he is going to ensure that you'll be exalted because you humbled yourself. Joshua 4, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. And so, what does the text tell us? If you humble yourselves. It's a, what we call a permissive passive in the Greek. Not that you need to know that, but what is important is what Peter is saying is permit yourself to be humble. Allow it. Humility has been defined as the ability to act ashamed when you tell people how wonderful you are. <laughs> Humility, it's not natural, is it? It's not easily learned. Arrogance is. And we can smell it a mile away, right? But oh, can humility be quickly forfeited when it's obtained? <laughs> no one's written a book on how I became humble. So humility recognizes God's sovereignty. It leads to exaltation. And the third thing that Peter highlights here, which is just beautiful, is that humility is accomplished by trusting God. Notice what he says here. And, and some translations in English aren't the best here because it says, if you humble yourselves under his mighty hand, and then verse 7, by casting all your cares on him. Some English translations translate the by casting as an imperative or as a command. Cast. The, the, here's the problem. The casting here is actually the means by which you humble yourself. How do you humble yourself before an almighty God? Casting your cares on him. Now let's think about that for a minute. Let's back up. First of all, the, the word cast means to, to place your coats 
or, or put something over something. It's what they did. The same word is used when they put their cloaks over the donkey when Jesus rode in on the triumphal entry. And, and we're told to cast, but it, it, again, it's, it's what we call a participle of means. It's not offering a new command here. It, it is, it's defining how we walk in humility. So think about this. How are you humble? By allowing God to deal with the crud. Saying, I trust you. Here it is. Isn't that beautiful? Because what does it say about God? He cares and he's able to deliver. Greek grammarian Daniel Wallace writes, humbling oneself is not a negative act of self-denial per se, but it's a positive one of active dependence on God for help. Isn't that great? I mean, that, that was free today. That should just make your, that should make your socks roll up and down. I mean, to know that how do I humble? By allowing God to take care of all this. I, I think the most difficult part of all of this is by casting all. That's the hard part, isn't it? I have no problem giving this portion to God, but over here, no, I like to worry. I just love having ulcers. It, it just, this is where I want to be. You know, you can have all that, but I'll take care of this. I, I, you know, what does it say? All. He says, place before me. Psalm 55, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. So think about this. Anxiety and worry then really is pride. Because it's saying, I'm self-sufficient, Lord, I'll take care of this. Or, Lord, I don't, I don't want to trust you in this. I'm not sure you could handle this. We'd never say that, but that's how we operate. Or, we, we fail to depend on Him. Thinking of a, a great illustration of this this week, and I'm not putting my kids on the spot. I'm not saying it happens at our house. But, you know, they're working on math and or whatever subject. You say, well, here, let me help you. I got this, Dad. You know, we're okay. No, really, let me, I, you know, I can, no, 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 no. And then they get upset because you don't help them, right? And then you fall in arrogance because you say, oh, I've been to school longer than you've been alive, right? And so then, you know, then it just goes downhill from there. So there you are. Uh, but isn't that how we kind of operate with God? I mean, here's God Almighty, all-knowing. He says, here, let me help you. No, 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 I got this, God. Thank you. We'll take care of this. <laughs> and the Lord, this is, really? So no wonder he doesn't use more two-by-fours upside people's heads, right? The call for humility, he, he says, is what, what we need in these hours of persecution, hours of suffering, hours of difficulties, is to, to walk in humility. He then goes into verse 8, something very interesting. He says, be sober and alert. Your enemy, the devil, is like a roaring lion, and he's on the prowl looking for someone to devour. Refusing to walk in humility, hear me out here, by casting all our cares upon him, gives a wonderful foothold for Satan. Doesn't it? If I cling to these certain things over here, Satan goes, great, I got you right where I want you. Think about it. He, uh, Peter uses the analogy of a lion. Lions have great experience in being patient as they wait for their prey. It says sometimes they'll wait for hours on end, hiding in the grass without any little movement. 
waiting for the prey to get close. And as soon as that movement, they can go into action. And once the prey gets closer, the lion attacks. And where does he go? The lion's strategy is to paralyze the prey by biting the back, the nose, and breaking their windpipe after the attack. What do you think about that? It's, it's sudden and it's unexpected, these lions who attack. They're ferocious, and their goal is to bring death. They love to hunt at night. They love to find the unaware prey, and they're cunning, looking for those who are vulnerable. <laughs> Throughout the Old Testament, Israel's enemies are described as lions, Psalm 22, my enemies open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. But there's something else going on here that's very significant that sometimes is missed. Let me give you a little bit of cultural background here. In the Greco-Roman world, lions were used in what was called bestia executions. Wild beasts were used not only for entertainment, but they were used in the process of executing Rome's enemies in arenas. I love this photo uh, here at Circus Maximus where Christians were killed by being devoured by lions. And I have no doubt as Peter is writing to believers in Asia Minor and further up north in what's modern Turkey, they're all very familiar. When you mention a lion, <laughs> boom. We immediately go to this. Ignatius, an early church bishop from Antioch in Asia Minor, this is second century, was arrested for being a Christian. Chained between Roman soldiers, he was taken over 1,500 miles to Rome, where he was thrown to the lions. But listen to this quote, or look at this quote that Ignatius makes in the process of going, allow me to become food for the wild beast. I am the wheat of God, and I am ground by the teeth of the wild beast, that I may be found the pure bread of Christ. And so, in 107 AD, the bishop of Syria, Antioch, was torn to pieces by lions as 87,000 spectators watched in Circus Maximus. When Peter says Satan is a roaring lion, you better believe they all set up and took attention. Because they understand this form of execution. And so describing Satan as a lion, what an appropriate image. He is the destroyer. He is the accuser. And look how Peter describes this, this one, this Satan. Not only is he your enemy, but he says he's roaring you get that, uh, you know, <laughs> been to the zoo when a lion roars? Whoo! Yeah, sounds like your second grade teacher. Prowling around, right? You got that as well. He, he's sneaky. He's moving. And he's looking to devour. The word literally means to gulp up, swallow whole. Even the grammatical construction of this verse is trying to show the intensity of it. <laughs> it's like, look out, be careful. And so Peter says, resist him, verse 9. How? Being strong in your faith. 
by remaining in the faith. Grudem writes, it implies a confidence that God will intervene and give the Christian victory, not defeat. Revelation 12 gives a great example of all of this. It says, they have conquered the devil by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they have loved not their lives even unto death. Notice the humility there. The term to resist is the same term used of the magicians in the Greek translation of the Old Testament against Moses, we saw in Exodus. And, and so how does a Christian resist the devil? We see here by faith. I thought of Ephesians 6, such a powerful text. Ephesians six thirteen. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, stand firm. Stand, therefore, having been fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. There it is. Which will extinguish the flaming darts of Satan, the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Three times Paul writes in that little passage in, in Ephesians, stand, 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 prepare to stand, take a stand. How? The text tells us, be strong in your faith. Look to this. And there's another point that Peter makes here back in 1 Peter 5. He says, because you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are enduring. The line, this isn't fair or, or you can't relate doesn't fit, does it? Because Peter's saying, there's people all over the world that are suffering for their faith. And, and you need to look to them. This, this should encourage you. It, it, it should in, immobilize you to stand fast. You're not alone in this, right? And this is why I encourage people, you need to read a Christian biography. Uh, at least once a year, pick up a Christian biography and read it. Uh, I, here's just four. You, perhaps you've read them. Maybe read it again. Well, let me give you a few. You know, Through the Gates of Splendor. You know that story. Elizabeth Elliot, her husband, uh, and several of his friends were killed by the Aka Indians and, and how they stood for Christ. It's fabulous. That book's a dynamite. Bonhoeffer, great biography if you've not read it. In My Father's House, Corey Timboom, how she grew up in her home. Her father, her sister, and many of her relatives were killed by the Nazis because they, would, they were hiding Jews and standing fast for Christ. Or Pure Gold, the Olympic winner, right, who wouldn't run on a Sunday and then gave it all up to go to the mission field. These are great books. And, and, and it, it reminds us, we're not alone in this. We're, we're standing fast. That's what's the beauty about the body of Christ coming together on Sunday. But also, we stand on the heads and shoulders of those who've gone before us. And may we not forget it. Well, I'm starting to preach on that one. We'll move on. But, but the whole point of suffering here in 1 Peter is, is so key. The, the whole epistle in this standing fast, I, I was looking at the topic of suffering throughout these five chapters. Let me just give you a few points that Peter highlights. Suffering occurs periodically, but it's brief. Suffering occurs in various forms and fashions. It occurs because the Lord has allowed it. Suffering occurs in order to bring God glory 
He states in 1 Peter 1, we are a testimony of his grace, his mercy, and his power. Suffering occurs in order to sweeten our longing to see Jesus. And suffering unites us with Christ. It's a call to rejoice because we can identify with him. 4.13, text we read earlier. And suffering for Christ brings us joy because we get to internalize the system of value. We're not shrinking back. We're being identified with this one called Jesus. So Peter says, walk in humility. Yes, it's hard. Life is hard. The church stands against a whole foe of enemies led by Satan. But he says, you need to walk in humility. You need to resist the devil. And I love how he concludes in verses 10 and 11, and you need to cling to hope. Look at these verses. He says, and after, this is so typical of the, Peter's letters. There's a contrast here. He, he's saying, in light of all that, but it's only for a little while. <laughs> and then the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself. Watch this. It's God himself who's involved. He didn't delegate this to angels. He didn't hope you'd make it. He himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. And then I love how he ends here, because he's not done with the letter, but he kind of breaks out in song. Peter goes, to him belongs the power forever. Amen! Right? This is great! And so he throws that into the letter uh, where you'd expect it more at the end. As we said, it's typical of Peter to draw this contrast, and he's doing that. And, and I love the line, the God of all grace who called you. Why is that so significant? Because in verse 5, he says, but grace will be given to the humble. How can he do that? Because he's the God of all grace. He'll take care of it. He will sustain. He will provide. He will care whenever, however, by his standard. And so we see here specifically what he will do for his children. He will restore. In other words, he will replenish the resources. He will confirm, making us stable in our faith. He will strengthen, making you strong, and he will establish. The four verbs, you go, I'm not sure I see a distinction. That's what a lot of scholars say. They're very similar. They're saying, well, I'm not sure there's a great distinction here. And one commentator writes, it may be hair splitting to differentiate the senses of the various verbs used. They are piled up rhetorically to emphasize that God will strengthen us even in every way to face persecution. And so Peter closes this glorious section and goes, and may it be, so be it, amen. I know this week, several of you shared with me in the last, actually last several weeks, we have people in our congregation who are on the verge of losing their job. They are struggling because of their position on the vaccination, and, and we have a variety of views in this church, so I, we walk in grace with one another, but for those who have said, no, I'm not doing that, they're on the verge of losing it. I had another gentleman who said, I'm, I'm about to lose my job because I won't go to the LBGQT, whatever you fill in the letters, like an alphabet soup nowadays. I won't go to their sensitive training at my work. And so I'm in, 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 in possibly losing this. 
I've had parents share with me, my kids are in public school, private school, and I don't like what they're being taught. It's not in accordance with scripture. Or some of you teens, kids at school, you're fearful that if you take a stand on gender issues and say, no, this is how God has made one rather than how it feels, you're gonna be ostracized or get a lower mark. Affliction either drives one into the arms of God or it severs one from God. In the midst of these persecutions, we must stand fast. And as Adonis and Ramon just shared, this is just the tip of the iceberg. We don't know what God has for our country in the days to come, but we do know this. Jesus stated it, you will be persecuted we're not martyrs for martyr's sakes. We don't offend. We walk in love and grace, but we take a stand for what is true, and we do not bend. Through God's grace, there was an article in USA Today this last week. I wasn't going to highlight this, but it was shown to me, and it was talking about Christian schools and how, ironically, they're still growing, and they featured one that I had taught at, and they said the reason the school turned around is because they fired a fundamentalist, that's yours truly, uh, and he took a stand. That's by God's grace. We're called to stand no matter the cost. And in the midst of the persecution, and I know some of you are right in the throes of it, cast your cares on him. Peter reminds us of the following, worry presumes upon the Lord it elevates ourself really quick. Worry is not confined to the realm of suffering or persecution. We know that. But worry-free life is one that possesses a single focus. It's Christ-focused. So at the bottom of your notes, I wrote the following. What area in your life brings a spirit of unrest? A job? Class, that you particular class you're in? You young people? Perhaps it's a family situation that just keeps you up at night. Are there any particular concerns that orbit around this area? If so, how do the promises of the Lord restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you in bringing comfort and peace? Thank you, Adonis and Ramonda, because they can testify, we've been through the fire, and nothing like what you've been through, we've been through a fire. And I can say God is good all the time. He sustains. Oh, it's not the plan we would have written for ourselves, but it is what God has asked. And so this missionary conference, Prepare to Stand, I believe is so fitting. We need to be prepared, no matter the cost, casting our cares on the Lord and allowing him to shoulder our burdens Go before us and bask in his grace. What a great God we serve. Father, thank you. We pray that when the times come, and, and for many, those times are right now, of standing on principles, standing on conviction, unwillingness to, to bend for truth. Lord, it's hard. And I, and I just pray for strength. 
Lord, you have called us to cling to you. And, and we are so grateful because we have the opportunity, we have the privilege, and we have the joy of casting this all at your feet. <laughs> Thank you, O oh Lord. Thank you that you go before, you strengthen, you restore, and Lord, what a day it will be when we stand in your midst. And in your midst, we'll see, huh, you understand fully, because your son came and suffered on this earth, died on a cross for our sins, bore our iniquities so that we could call you Father. And we thank you. In Jesus' name.